I think in the dynamic, the first place to start is vulnerability. Vulnerability changes the cycle. And we have to kind of understand a bit about ourselves. When my partner presses forward and asks me for sex every day, what do I feel? What happens inside me? What do I tell myself? You know, exactly how do I get triggered here that that I move into my more protective mechanism, which is maybe to withdraw. So we, we have to understand that column, if you will, of actions and feelings that now is going to trigger my partner uh, in order to kind of figure out what I should do next. Welcome to Asking for a Friend, the podcast that covers all those topics you may want to know more about, but might feel a lot of shame in asking. I'm your host, Katrina Buffard, and I'm a clinical sexologist, psychotherapist, speaker, and sexuality researcher. This week's episode is sponsored by Desir, South Africa's leading sexual health and wellness brand. Desir believes that sexual health is not just about the latest sex toy, but about using products to improve one's overall sexual health and well-being. For 15% off online, use the code FORAFRIEND. My very first guest of season four is somebody I've admired for many years and long before I had my own podcast, I was sharing her podcast with my clients and colleagues because it's a goldmine of knowledge. Dr. Laurie Watson is a highly experienced certified sex therapist and the co-host of the chart-topping podcast, Foreplay Radio Sex Therapy. She's also an author, a speaker, has featured in media from the New York Times to Huffington Post and offers weekend retreats for couples in North Carolina. Where do we even start? I mean, this is such, such an immense topic, both from a theoretical perspective and from a lived perspective. And as I've said, I've learned so much from you and almost the experiential, the experiential experience, if we can call it that, that I've gained from the way that you and your co-hosts, whether it's been Adam or George, have enacted and role-played different mm-hmm. scenarios in your podcast. I almost would say, and I think it's a, a typical thing of therapists, we often learn way more from the doing than we did from the theory, but the theory mm-hmm. is very important. So I guess the best place to start is is to describe and to define what sexual withdrawers and sexual pursuers are. So in a romantic relationship, we have two cycles of attachment, ways that we get connected and bonded with our partner. There's an emotional cycle and a sexual attachment cycle. The emotional cycle, most of us are very familiar with. Um, One person kind of needs more connection, often is saying, let's spend more time together. I want you to share your feelings with me. And they press for more. And the other person is often, we call them the emotional withdrawer, and they feel a little bit pressured by that. Maybe if things go bad in the relationship, they feel suffocated by that pressure. They seem to need more intensity outside of the relationship in their work or maybe their game playing hobbies or maybe they're a marathoner. Something else kind of calls them that is a bit more autonomous. And so that loop often gets um, into a negative cycle where one person pressures the other. I need more from you. The other person pulls away. You're, You're too much for me. 
which actually makes the pursuing partner a little frantic, makes them pressure more, which makes the withdrawing partner shut down more. Same thing happens in the sexual cycle. So in the sexual cycle, one person, and this is frequently crisscrossed in heterosexual couples. So often the male, there are more male emotional withdrawers and more female emotional pursuers. But in the sexual cycle, it's reversed. There are more male sexual pursuers. So they feel the need for connection in their bodies. <clears throat> Excuse me. In part, I think, you know, testosterone really informs the way their body feels. I often say physiology uh, changes psychology. So this copious amounts of testosterone um, has an adaptive effect on the male body where they, they really do feel the push for sex, but their mind also feels it as often the deepest place of love. So they push for sex, sometimes pressure for sex, and the female who has lower testosterone moves away from the sexual relationship, often needing emotional connection first before she's ready to have sex. But the problem is, is we think, well, it would just be so easy. He needs to emotionally connect and all would be well. But, but actually what happens, these cycles are interacting at all times with each other and her sexual withdrawal impacts the way he feels emotionally. He doesn't feel as safe sexually. And so he pulls away further emotionally and still comes forward sexually, which makes her feel like you're just wanting to use my body. And then she backs up further sexually on and on it goes. So these two cycles can become negative in romantic relationship. And we need both of them functioning in a healthy way in order to feel secure attachment. It's such a, a almost a beautiful dy dynamic in a weird way that you've explained. And I mean beautiful in the way that it weaves, um, not so beautiful in the way that it's experienced for, for most right. people. Yes, yes. So interesting that you spoke about the, the, the way that this is kind of typical in heterosexual couples. Is there a difference in same-sex couples or, 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 you know, people who are, you know, gender non-conforming or different identities? So, I, I mean, there is often congruency and um, there's often a crisscross cycle between them as well. I, I think typically in heterosexual couples, it's crisscrossed. Whereas it could be random, it's more personality based in um, a gender non-conforming couple or a lesbian couple or um, a homosexual couple. I mean, they still have both cycles at play, but because their physiology is often the same, not necessarily in a gender non-conforming couple, um, but then that kind of changes the way they experience it. So it's so very interesting. I guess it's so individual and unique, but I've always said to my clients, I can't explain it to them, but they're like magnets that that withdrawer and the pursuer, particularly in the heterosexual couple will so often come together. You, you did such a wonderful, um, or you, you gave such a wonderful explanation there. I was, I was going to ask about that difference between, you know, the emotional style and the sexual style. Why is it different? But as you spoke about the way that the, emotional uh, the way that the emotional withdrawer often may try and connect sexually and be the sexual pursuer 
which then just plays into that weaving back and forth. And I know in emotion focused therapy, you know, often we think of the figure of eight, that infinity symbol that just goes back and forth. I speak about that all the time with my couples and, and they find it really helpful. What sort of behaviors, if we could talk specifically, would would one want to look out for or pay attention to if they were trying to identify if they were with more a withdrawer sexually or more a pursuer sexually? I think the best explanation is my co-host George Fowler says pursuers want more. And I, I often think about in sexuality, what I hear from sexual pursuers is they want more intensity. Um, oftentimes that includes higher frequency. They want more variety, which they experience as mentally intense and exciting. They also often want more passion expressed. Um, so, you know, that's kind of how it goes for the sexual pursuer. I, I would say the emotional pursuer wants the same sort of thing. They want their partner's eyes to light up when they walk into the room. They want this hit that says, you are happy to see me. You want to be with me and kind of initiation and engagement. So every pursuer, emotional or sexual, wants more engagement and just more period. And withdrawers, what happens is they have a strategy to manage conflict. And so do pursuers. The strategy for a withdrawer to manage conflict when they are pressed for more or when they are told really what happens is the pursuer often begins to get critical. You don't give me enough. It's not just, I want more. I, I would love to do this. I would love to do that. That's a beautiful way that a pursuer can present something positively. But what happens in coupleships is frequently that becomes critical. I'm not getting enough. And so the withdrawer's strategy is let's talk about that later. They shut down because they actually have a good intent. They want to keep things calm. The way they protect the relationship is keeping things calm. The way a pursuer manages the relationship is let's talk about it now. Let's get through this. Their anger and their criticism is drawing attention to the ways that the relationship doesn't work. And so they, they think really in their hearts, like if I press you, if I just tell you more of what I need, you, of course, you love me, you will answer that and give me this and we will be happier. So their anger is actually a push that says, I'm trying to get through to you. And the often the withdrawal, their protective strategy is to pull back, push, pull back, push, pull back no matter which cycle it is. And I mean, I think we've all heard this, right? We even hear this in our culture, women who say after they've been partnered for a while, oh, you know, he just is always after me, always pawing at me. And, you know, why can't he just leave me alone? And men often say, you know, buddy, you know, I'm not getting any either. You know, it's just almost a myth in our culture that couples don't reach secure sexual attachment. I don't think that's true. I think couples can and couples do. And I would also add that I need to represent myself here. I, I call myself a sexual pursuer and an emotional pursuer. So while I'm heterosexual, I have um, a style where I push in both cycles. 
It's it's so helpful to hear you say that and, and you, you've often identified yourself when having these conversations on your podcast because I, I, I think self-disclosure is very helpful. I think it helps normalize our experience. Um, what is fascinating for me is how what comes up in the pursuer then activates what comes up in the withdrawer and thus activates what comes up in the pursuer. And that pursuer thinking I'm too needy or I don't get enough or I want more or wanting more is bad often relates to that primary kind of emotion they're experiencing of feeling unimportant or abandoned. And so they tend to reach for more. They want more. So whether it's reaching more physically or reaching more emotionally or sexually, as you said, and then what we're seeing is that the withdrawer, that kind of activates them, as you said, that pulling back and is often triggering a sense of inadequacy, not being good enough and pulling further back into the shell. I, I use the analogy um, in, in workshops and with clients of the, of the tortoise and the tornado. I needed to find some lovely alliteration with some two two kind of metaphors that would work well, but the tortoise and the tornado where the tornado comes along and wants to talk now or wants to, you know, why don't you want me now? What's wrong with me now? And the, the tortoise or the turtle, I suppose you could call it, goes into its shell and withdraws and it's fine. I don't need to talk about it. I'm going to avoid it and I'm going to pull back further. I, I, I often find that dynamic is just, is so interesting when couples simply just learn about the dynamic, let alone learn what to do to come out of it, to overcome it. What have you found in the retreats that you run and in the couples therapy that you've offered? I think I love your metaphor. I think it really is a more vivid example uh, of what is happening in the coupleship than pursue withdraw. That kind of sounds dry and psychobabble. So I love yours. And you said something right before I answered last about, do we kind of find each other? Do pursuers find withdrawers? And I would say most couples, even securely attached couples do have a bit of pursue and withdraw in their relationship. Occasionally you'll find two withdrawers who connect and partner together or two pursuers. I think it's everybody's fantasy to have two pursuers together. Everybody it wouldn't Somebody be wants as much as I do. It wouldn't be in therapy then with us. <laughs> they would not be in therapy with us. They'd just be having great sex all the time. But no, I think you're right. And I think that dynamically, even if we are um, not natively that way, our, our hurricane or our tornado creates the desire for the other to turtle. And the person who turtles creates in the other this frantic sense of I've got to get bigger, louder um, in order to get through to you. So it's, I think there is something that says we're probably attracted to the opposite. I mean, I think about a person who maybe is a little more chaotically organized and they, they see another withdrawer as stable and that strong, silent type that really feels safe in the beginning. And probably the person who is a bit turtled sees the hurricane as exciting, the tornado as exciting. And they, they think, wow, you have the life and the joie de vivre that I you know, want and need. So in the beginning, we're very attracted to these qualities. Over time, of course, we see the difficulties with them and how they create the negative cycle between us. And, and how, that, that, how that is bringing about that lack of safety, I guess. I mean, from an attachment perspective, I'm such an attachment geek. 
Absolutely love it. And safety is paramount in a securely attached relationship, no matter what type of relationship it is. And I think when I speak to couples about this, they're often surprised when I talk about the notion of safety and sex. While we might think of kink and BDSM when we think safety, we're not talking about that superficial idea of safety. We're talking about a deep emotional safety around vulnerability and risk-taking. And for couples that you're seeing, how, I suppose it's difficult to quantify maybe, but you know, how difficult is it for them to really believe that there can be safety again in a relationship? There can be safety enough for them to step into that space or, or, or pop their head out from under their shell or calm the winds and the rain a little bit from the tornado? Mm-hmm. It's a good question. Um, I think that the research demonstrates that optimal sexuality comes when we are securely attached. So we actually have more freedom, the safer we feel with our partner. We have more freedom to be experimental, to bear our hearts, to bear our bodies, to try different things. And I think that's counterintuitive because many people say, you know, the hottest sex I had was when I was not safe, but when I was early in relationship um, and I really didn't have that sense of connection, but I did have the hottest sex of my life during that time. So what are you talking about, Lori uh, or Katrina about how safety and deep connection is actually going to create hot sex I think that as we get partnered, what happens is our sexual courage goes down. Uh, We worry so much. The person actually is more important to us. And so we worry about their judgment. Maybe we've suggested something in the past and they had a look on their face. And so we tell ourselves, oh, that's off my list. I'm not going to suggest that sexually anymore. Um, And ironically, in the early partnership, our sexual expression gets truncated. And this is kind of natural, but my sense is if we reach secure attachment sexually, it it is expansive again. So it's within that, that we will try more with each other than maybe we would have tried even in the beginning. I, I really think that what happens in early sex is we don't care. We don't care about their judgment. And so we are very courageous and brave uh, and do try things. And we want to return that quality into the securely attached sexual cycle, um, but we want it to be even deeper. So it's a bit of a conundrum. I know um, it's difficult for people to think that, oh, you mean longer partnership is going to be hotter sex? That just is not culturally out there. I, I totally understand what you're saying. I mean, I did a podcast episode at the end of my last season with um, Peggy Kleinplatz, who is the oh, yeah. right? she's the person on extraordinary sex. I feel so fortunate. I get to speak to the most amazing people. I don't know how this happens, but I'm, I'm very happy that it's been happening. So yes, exactly. I, I did that episode with Peggy and we spoke about what, what does extraordinary sex look like? What is an optimal sexual experience? And I did have people contacting me after that episode came out to say, this goes against everything I ever thought. Is it not about three times a week or how many orgasms I have? And I always bang my head against a wall because no, sex has got sexual satisfaction has nothing to do with frequency and nothing to do with how many orgasms you're having and everything to do with our ability to truly deeply connect with somebody and that safety that we create. But it is interesting. And I really like that point you made around that 
early sexual partnership. I think, as you rightly said, often in the kind of hooking up, if we can call it that, that kind of hooking up phase, we are more willing to try things sexually or be a little bit, I don't know, different sexually with a partner because there isn't that emotional risk. There, there's the physical stuff and the sexual stuff, but that emotional stuff is not yet there. And when people do start to get into the relationship, when intimacy is starting to develop, for so many people, a lot of fear comes up, so much fear, so much anxiety. And with the withdrawer and the pursuer, anxiety is really at the root of that. Is that right? Yes, I, I think you're right. And anxiety impacts us physiologically as well. So our responsiveness sexually also diminishes if we're feeling anxious emotionally or if we're feeling anxious sexually about our performance or about our bodies or our body self-image. All of that diminishes the, the sexual experience. And then also we've got past trauma that we our bodies hold on to. We know so well now how much trauma is held in the body messages we've received that might yield you know in childhood that might yield anxious connotations so i imagine or 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 should i say that what i've seen actually it's better for me to say that what i've seen in in my clients and what i've learned through your podcast is that so often we are playing out a certain type of dynamic with a partner even sexually that is quite entrenched within us, within our minds and our bodies. I think you're right on, especially with trauma. The irony is that many people, once they marry, let's say, the trauma of their body comes forward and impacts the sexual relationship. And their partner will say, you know what? They were really free. They were really wild. They were very expressive when we were first together. I don't see why now they're so shut down, but it is ironically the safety of the partnership that allows the trauma to emerge. It is good news because then the person can be fully healed, but for the partner experiencing that and kind of the, the doubt and the confusion of, I I don't get who my partner is suddenly, why are they withdrawing sexually? And so different than how they were, it can, it can be really difficult. And sometimes trauma takes some time to work through. So that's a hard thing. And, but I think you're right. Also are the messages from our childhood, um, whether our bodies were accepted, you know, certainly for gender non-conforming people, you know, as they come out, uh, lesbian and gay people, you know, was that acceptable to their parents, to their families of origin, Uh, all of that kind of impacts the sense of the sexual self and how they express it, as well as just um, any kind of message from our parents about it. And I think that the home messages are really more about what is lived out in front of us than what is told to us. The, The talk on the birds and the bees is the least impactful in terms of an imprint on our eventual sexuality than I call it the triumph or tragedy of our parents and their ability to develop and form intimate romantic relationships. So, so would it be amiss of me to say that if somebody didn't have very physically affectionate parents, whether physical affection towards each other as a couple or towards that person as a child, 
the chances are that they may grow up to be a withdrawer because they don't turn to or, or require physical touch and connection for safety. They, that, that's not where they found it as a child. Oh, Katrina. Yes. Uh, unfortunately, the lack of affection in our childhoods does a real number on us. I think all children, of course, need copious amounts of affection and touch. We all need it. But if it isn't forthcoming, we take these um, deficits and deprivation, feelings of deficit and deprivation into our souls. And we make this vow inside, I won't need that again. Because it's so painful to need to be held and touched and picked up as a child and not have that happen. I mean, we literally have our souls shrivel a little bit. We know that without enough attuned touch, children die, babies die. So it's so critical. But to survive that psychically as a child, we we put up this wall, this fortress that says, I won't need it. And then when we partner in adulthood, that wall is still there. And maybe in the beginning, we know that, you know, to be sexual is part of what captures somebody's attention. So we do it then, but then in partnership, these problems start to replicate, right? Anytime we're in long-term relationship, we're going to replicate family of origin patterns and feelings. And so this comes out again, it's like, oh, not safe to do it. And it's so unconscious. The person who wasn't touched enough is not deliberately withholding sex and saying, well, I'm just not going to need that. They don't even know that's occurring. It just feels so natural to them to not need. So what about the reverse then with the pursuer? I mean, would they have been, would they have grown up in a household where There was lots of affection. Affection was perhaps smothering, was too much, or is that a little bit off? Well, it's a really good question because actually sometimes people who grew up in families that were invasive and smothering and controlling also shut down emotionally or sexually. So it's not quite that way. Secure attachment where there was adequate affection, warm touch, no violations of boundaries, and there was good economic stability and good boundaries. Those are the children who grow up with the most freedom sexually. They they can give and take. They can uh, make love and be givers. They can assert their needs. Those are it's the middle children who have enough that are the best sexual partners and enjoy sex the most. Pursuers often, depending on where they are in the continuum. Um, anxiously attached people, right, might have had their needs met intermittently. And so, you know, sometimes mommy is there and kisses me goodnight. And other times, you know, she's off fighting with dad or, you know, there's an intermittent part where they kind of get frantic about whether or not there will be enough to get their needs met. We all know psychologically that intermittent rewards, an intermittent reward, like when you're training an animal, um, makes the behavior the strongest. That conditioning, so, like a positive, like a positive reinforcement or conditioning. Yes. So it's actually the intermittent reward, right? If you're training a dog in the beginning, you give them treats every time, but over time you only give them treats a little bit and it makes them want to work harder for you. And as a child, when we have intermittent rewards, we long for an egg 
for more of what we need. And so this, this lack of consistency in children, yes, I think in some pursuers, it creates a frenetic need for touch and for sex, which um, can be problematic. Sex is a complicated process because it includes biology. It also includes motives from our attachment style. There's kind of four motives. Securely attached people want pleasure and intimacy. So they're very sure that they need and like and want genital pleasure. And they also feel emotional closeness during sex. But there are two other motives, and that's kind of a motive for approval. Oftentimes, I see women in hookups having sex um, because they want to be reassured that they're desirable. In fact, in hookups, you know, only 10% of women have orgasms. So this is this is problematic for me as a, a woman. You know, I'm not sure why it's happening because then their soul is kind of crushed the next morning when he doesn't really want her. Um, and oftentimes another motive that doesn't work as well is a coping motive. So I need sex to go to sleep. I need sex to de-stress. I need sex um, because I had a bad day and that gives me a lift. And, and in functioning sexual relationships, all of those motives are present and work fine. But when we have a pursue withdraw dynamic, you know, if a pursuer is using only the coping motive, you know, I just need sex every night to go to sleep. I need sex to, to de-stress and to not feel as anxious. Their partner often feels that motive as being used, you know, and oftentimes, right. If, if we have a secure sexual pursuer and their partner says, I just want to make sure you find me attractive and that you're going to stay with me and gives them sex for that reason. They don't feel that really deep connection that they're longing for. So that motive fails. It, it's complicated. It, it is complicated, but at the same time, it's often quite textbook. I hate to use the word typical, the dynamic that plays out. So often when I have conversations with people about sexual desire and desire discrepancy, and particularly with heterosexual couples, this, this particular dynamic comes out. He always wants sex. She never wants sex. Mm-hmm. And it's so interesting when couples actually start to, to learn about sexual desire discrepancy or differences and understand that actually this is about withdrawers and pursuers. It's not about one person having a low libido and another person having a high libido. I, I try and get couples to, or people, I suppose, to understand that this is not about high and low. This is about withdrawing and pursuing and this the seeking out of something that we need or the pulling, well, I suppose, and the pulling back from um, something that's causing us to feel anxious and therefore to a place we need to be. I I guess then my question is, well, if that is one's default uh, default setting, if we could call it that, for, forgive the, the kind of superficial term, how do we go about changing that? And I obviously know this is about creating safety, but how do you advise people to, to kind of face and turn towards the dynamic that's playing out between them? And I know I've heard you speak about the pursuer stay standing still and not pushing forward and the withdrawer taking a step forward, almost kind of to meet in the middle somehow. So how do we do that? How do we change our default if we've got a classic withdrawer and pursuer dynamic? Certainly those are the action steps that eventually need to happen. 
I think in the dynamic, the first place to start is vulnerability. Vulnerability changes the cycle. And we have to kind of understand a bit about ourselves. When my partner presses forward and asks me for sex every day, what do I feel? What happens inside me? What do I tell myself? You know, exactly how do I get triggered here that that I move into my more protective mechanism, which is maybe to withdraw. So we, we have to understand that column, if you will, of actions and feelings that now is going to trigger my partner um, in order to kind of figure out what I should do next. So I, I would say maybe as a typical um, sexual withdrawer, female, my partner has asked every night this week, you know, can we do it? Can we do it? Can we do it? Can we do it? And I just feel overwhelmed. I've got two little kids underfoot. I'm working full time. I'm tapped out. I'm tired. And what do I do is I push back and I snap and it's like, would you just get over it? I mean, do you not know that, you know, the kids are only a little once for crying out loud and I am exhausted and you're not helping. And, you know, all the criticism kind of comes flooding out with a pushback. So I would want to help that person analyze what actually happens. And as a withdrawer, as you noted earlier in this podcast, some of the basic things that happen is I tell myself I'm not good enough. I'm not a good partner here. I'm not meeting my partner's needs. Some of that view of who I am, my view of myself gets challenged. Also the view of the other, they're selfish, they're demanding. You know, I tell myself this, I I don't really know how my partner feels it or where they're living. So we kind of make up a little bit. And maybe for me, I feel this thud in my stomach. You know, as soon as the request comes, I, I just... I brace for it. My stomach drops. And and what does that tell me? So I want to learn about my feelings inside. I mean, first, I feel irritated and angry. Again, one more question. But there's a more primary emotion that starts to evolve as I question what I'm experiencing. And it may be, you know, I feel I'm not good enough and I don't have enough energy for this. So rather than pushing back with criticism and anger, Eventually, I want to say, oh, I want to encapsulate in my reply my partner's needs and say, you know what? I know this is what you need. And I know we haven't had sex for a week. And I imagine your body is getting a little frantic over there. And I know that you need that to feel my love. I'm just struggling right now, I'm overwhelmed. And it's funny when you ask me, I feel this deep, dread of I'm going to disappoint you again. I'm going to one more time, not be enough for you. And I just want to go away in all of that. I feel myself pulling back, but I'm telling you this so that you can understand my world. And I'm wondering, tell me about your world. What is happening inside you and inside your body, you know, in this week that we're living in right now? So we want to learn emotional intelligence, sexual intelligence, And then with vulnerability, describe ourselves better without the blaming tone. And I mean, sexual withdrawers, yeah, there's certain things that they can do that really help. They first have to know their body. I mean, they have to know how they orgasm, what patterns really make it great for them. 
And they have to kind of do some self-exploration of that. They have to do this examination of what happens in the dynamic. What, why am I pulling back? What am I telling myself? And that allows them to come forward, both emotionally coming forward with their vulnerability and sexually eventually coming forward with more availability. Have you often seen the dynamic where a pursuer is kind of crying out or calling out or longing, not necessarily for the sexual stuff, but just for the physical intimate connection in a way that isn't just the everyday mundane and mm-hmm. the distancer misses that the, the, and the withdrawer misses that. And the withdrawer hears that as, as well, you only want me when you want sex. So yeah. I'm, I can't give that to you, but actually if the withdrawer can, can reach physically for the pursuer more, you know, holding a hand, a kiss, a hug, a cuddle, because we know that withdrawers will often avoid affection because they're fearful that the pursuer will misinterpret that as them wanting to have sex. So they'll yes. avoid, avoid any kind of physical affection at all. But have you, have you seen that where if the withdrawer does step into that a little bit to be affectionate and to be a little bit more physically intimate that isn't necessarily sexual, it helps to soothe the pursuer's anxieties a bit? Yes. I mean, we know that touch, whether it's cuddling or all the way to orgasm, releases uh, oxytocin and that soothes us. That makes us feel bonded. So yes, I, I think what has to happen in the coupleship is good communication. You know, I can see you're stressed out and I'm kind of imagining after the day you had, you do not want to have sex. I totally get that, sweetheart. I'm wondering though, could you hold me for a few minutes before we go to bed? Like I would just love, it's okay if you wear your pajamas, but I would love for us to just have skin on skin time. And I promise you, I will not touch you intimately because I know that that would trigger you, but I would just love to be held in this way so that they can really ask vulnerably for what they need with a clarification so that it makes it safe for their partner to come toward them. I love what you've just said. I love the example you've just given it. It's such a real example. And I was thinking to myself, just in the answer you gave just before, you were you were talking about kind of ownership and curiosity in the way that we communicate. And we know that couples find talking about sex to be the most difficult topic in their relationships. It's funny, we all do it. We just really struggle to have conversations or at least productive, you know, healthy conversations about it. The conversations are usually around, you never want to have sex with me, or you always want to have sex. You don't want me really unhelpful kind of topics and really unhelpful conversations. So we know that it's super hard for couples. So I found that example that you've just given really beautiful and really easy, but is there any other advice you would give to couples who do really struggle with this topic? who have really found raising it in their relationship very difficult and very shaming or anxiety provoking. Yeah. I think talking about sex is harder than having sex. Yeah. (laughs) Um, George and I, we're trying to role play examples of what, like just what I gave you, you know, pretending to be a couple who are sexually involved for the record, we're we're married to other people. Um, But, you know, I, I find even in those role plays, sometimes doing things that are new, like 
talking about sex in a new way with a very responsive partner, like, wow, you know, even I'm learning here. I want to take this back to my partner. In fact, um, one of the things that we intend to do is describe a male and a female orgasm um, in a really detailed way so that our listeners can start to hear how we put words to bodily sensations. And so with my husband, I told him, you know what? I need to have a lot of orgasms this weekend so that I can describe it on Monday when I podcast. It's research. I'm doing research, exactly. But I think you're so right. It, it is such a difficult thing to talk about, and it's a wordless way to express our feelings sometimes. So we've never really put emotional words to this. Um, you know, is it, do we feel exaltation when we have an orgasm? You know, do we feel just undone? you know, because we're so torn apart by it in our body, in our mind, in our spirit, in our soul, you know, I mean, we don't even think about it. We just do it. And let alone the richness, have the richness that might come if we could communicate with our partner about what is actually happening in our bodies, what we feel about them, what we feel about ourselves, what we fantasize about. It's such a great place and such an underdeveloped place in coupleships that we could have more and have more bonding and have more understanding, which improves the sex, but also improves our relationship. So I think from what you're saying, it is possible for two people in this dynamic of withdrawer-pursuer to change their dynamic, to create safety. And very often it, it is going to stem from talking about it, but also taking the risk to talk about it in an emotional way. So that is really showing up and as your whole self and as, as, as the most or kind of authentic, true version of your emotional self that you can show up as. That is super uncomfortable for people. I'm a therapist and I'm, you know, those, those who can't do teach. So I find that so uncomfortable showing up and it's had to be something I've had to work at and I've had to learn with my partner and him and I, I mean, just because he is married to a psychotherapist does not mean he's great at talking about his emotions. And one of the things we we often speak about is that, I'm the therapist in the relationship here, but he often can be better at it than I can, which I think is quite typical. But it's hard, even for even for me, I imagine for you sometimes too, it's hard to talk about these things, especially as you said, about a topic that is actually easier to do than it is to talk about. So there is hope, I guess, is the, what I want to kind of pick up on. There's there's hope, we can be optimistic. It doesn't always have to be like this, but it isn't just going to happen. It does require action. It does require intentionality. Right, it does. And I think in the sexual attachment cycle, we all kind of come into the sex re- sexual relationship believing that sex, it should be natural and easy and that good sex proof of it is that it's natural and easy. But sex requires tons and tons of work. And you know, practice makes perfect. and it, it can be fun work, but I think it is emotionally challenging. I think, as we said, early sex, we don't care about what our partner thinks. Later on, we need to develop sexual courage. We do care what our partner thinks. And it becomes even more important to expose ourselves to them to, as I, as I say on the podcast, we want to stay naked. You know, we want to stay vulnerable. Mm-hmm. I love that. And, and it's, it's such a beautiful 
kind of place for us to finish up at. Is there anything else you think that my listeners need to hear about sexual withdrawers and pursuers? Do you think we've covered the length and breadth of it in the shortest time frame that we can? It's like a whistle-stop tour of the dynamic. Right. I think that they need to know that, first of all, it is healable and that we can reach secure sexual attachment and that everybody kind of organizes this way. I, I think that's what's so powerful about attachment theory to me is that it gives us a way to organize ourselves and to start thinking about things as patterns instead of isolated fights or incidents. You know, well, we argued about chores and then we argued about the children. Then we argued about sex and it always feels different. But when you begin to see that there is typically a movement toward or away from our partner in the cycle, whether it be emotional or sexual, uh, now we have some abilities to make a difference, to change, to know what our next move might be that would change the whole cycle. I always say to clients, it's not about the dishwasher or the socks left on the floor and can actually be really beneficial to pick up on the pattern of behavior here because the chances are it's the same pattern every single time, which means you don't have to fight about different things. You can actually talk about the pattern that's coming up for the both of you. It's been such a pleasure to speak to you today. I feel like I got I, I got an education today and I, I, I really, the, the wealth of knowledge that you have on this subject is immense. And I'm so grateful that you gave me your time to talk about it. You, you are so welcome. And I just wish I had had the kind of knowledge that you have as an attachment theorist and doing therapy right now when I was your age. As a young therapist, I really did not know this. I mean, I think I was helping people certainly, but I wasn't as good at organizing it with attachment theory that came later in my career. So, I mean, I'm just grateful that there are people out there like you and you're going to carry the torch. And um, I love that. So thank you for what you're doing too. That's awesome. That means a lot. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be grateful if you could rate and review this podcast so that you can continue learning about some incredible and fascinating topics and get the information about sex you should always have had. You can subscribe and follow this podcast on your favorite platform.